Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. If you enjoy One Hit Thunder, which I'm assuming you do considering you're listening to it right now, I want to tell you about another great music podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's called Riffs on Riffs. On this season of Riffs on Riffs, hosts Toby Braswell and Joe Watson are breaking down one iconic pop song each week. Everything from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' to Naughty by Nature's OPP. Each week, they crack open the song, trace its history, decode those cryptic lyrics, and unearth the hidden gems in its musical DNA. Not only do they dive into the song's history, lyrics, and impact, they also go down some fun and oftentimes hilarious rabbit holes. So yeah, if you're a fan of One Hit Thunder, I think you'll also enjoy Riffs on Riffs. So go hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, do you have an idea for a podcast but don't know where to start? Or do you have an already existing podcast that you want to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. From concept development to theme music to editing to logos, WeKnowPodcasting.com is a one-stop shop for all things pod. Don't hesitate to hit us up. We're very nice. Yellow Card's popularity exploded in 2004 as an entire generation of Warped Tour kids hit the record stores and called in to TRL. While Yellow Card had a few other minor hits, none of their other singles ever reached the massive heights of Ocean Avenue. This week, we're joined by Chelsea Christer, the filmmaker behind the upcoming documentary Bleeding Audio, which is the story of contemporaries and one-time tour mates of Yellow Card, The Matches. Together, we decide if Yellow Card should run forever or if that wave should have crashed down long ago. Today, we are talking about Yellow Card, Ocean Avenue. I feel like I am pretty uniquely positioned to talk about this song in a lot of ways. Not only am I a peer of this band, sort of experienced it in real time at the time, but also recently on a podcast I produced, we had Ryan Key on telling the story of this song. So I feel like I... From all angles, I can talk about this song and this era. I might be one of the most qualified people to talk about this song that ever existed, minus the band members. So cool choice, Chelsea. 
from the start here, why did you pick this song? Yeah, uh, so I picked this song because it felt like kind of a nice tie-in with my film Bleeding Audio, which is about the band The Matches. It also felt like such a pivotal time for me and my own music discovery. And this song just kind of felt like this weird milestone or like this crossroads. And I was like, you know, I was going through all these one-hit wonders and I and I kept thinking about like, all these classic tunes that I just love and listen to a lot now. But then I was like, what would be more meaningful to talk about in terms of like the context of my being here, being a filmmaker, telling a story about a band from that era and just that time period in general. So yeah, that's why I picked it. Cause I was like, this feels, this feels interesting and relevant. I have to say is like the stats guy, yellow card has one of the most baffling chart positionings I've tried to follow in a really long time because like, you know, we primarily look at the billboard 100 to decide things. And like on the billboard 100, yeah. Oceans Avenue was their only top 40 hit just barely got there. It, it peaked out at 37, but then lights and sounds a year later hit 50 on the billboard charts. But here's where it gets weird. Lights and sounds is somehow their highest charting alternative rock song which made it to number four on the alternative chart while Oceans Avenue didn't even make it into the top 20 on the alternative chart. And I don't understand how that's possible. <laughs> First of all, Matt, you're confusing Ocean Avenue with Ocean's Eleven, I, I believe, in your, in, your, in your pronunciation of this song. Maybe both out at the same time or, or similar times. I don't know. Maybe that could be where your Pretty confusion close. lies. But Chelsea might not know this. Matt, you and I know this and listeners know this. We don't really use the billboard charts as the end all be all on deciding if a band or an artist is a one hit wonder. This was a strange one for me because I don't think of yellow card as a one hit wonder. I kind of forget that they had one hit at all. They're just one of those bands that are from our world. And by our world, I mean like the world of music that my band is in and a lot of other friends of mine's bands are in. And I'm sometimes like, oh yeah, I guess they're a one hit wonder. Kind of like in the same vein of like, oh yeah, the Mighty Mighty Boston's, they're a one hit wonder, I guess. You know, it's like one of those situations. But all this stuff aside, Ocean Avenue is the song that if someone was just a passive listener at the time, they might be like, oh yeah, I remember that song. And rightfully so. I got to say, it's a really good song. It's a really fun one. And honestly, what I would argue, too, is my film, Bleeding Audio, we talk about the story of the band The Matches, but we also talk a lot about what the industry, the music industry was like at this pivotal time. You know, 2004 was incredibly volatile in that, like, record sales were fluctuating and going down and, like, bands were, you know, kind of, you know, starting to tour relentlessly in order to make up for the lost income with music pirating. But like what was really interesting to me and why I feel like Ocean's Avenue or Ocean <laughs> Avenue, <laughs> you got me saying it now, Ocean Avenue is like such an interesting one hit wonder is because to me, that was like the point when the like huge rock band or like rock stars or like the arena bands started to die. And so like this one hit wonder to us, we're like, oh, it doesn't feel like a one hit wonder. They had a career afterwards. They had other songs, but that was like all bands from then on out, right? Like think about like every band post 2004 that had like one hit and just sort of, you know, 
is like the medium font on all the arenas or all the like festivals, right? You know, it's like those headliners, you know, that exist at festivals now, like in terms of rock bands, like there aren't really that many, like you get one hit and then they get a career with like the one song that everybody cheers for. But like, I feel like that era and that time is it was like, oh, this is like Ocean Avenue was like one of those songs that was like, oh, this gave this band a career. And then like, that's just what it was like afterwards. If I'm if I'm making sense. (laughs) No, that makes (laughs) sense. Yeah, Yeah. this was like the peak of MySpace, right? So like, I think that Ocean Avenue is one of those interesting ones where, yeah, they're a one hit wonder in like a mainstream sense of the word. But then it's also like you have these weird songs, like a song like View from Heaven, right? Like you have this song View from Heaven that's on the same album that like my sister who does not listen to this type of music at all knows and loves that song because it was like a song that was used so much on MySpace to pay tribute to like when someone's friend died. There's these weird pockets of like non-single songs that were available on MySpace players for people to put on their pages that are just as popular, but they were never like officially released as anything. And they're kind of just like these weird, obscure one-offs. That's like what's happening on TikTok right now, apparently. Like, I don't know. I I don't actually have TikTok or use it, but like apparently a ton of musicians are getting crazy royalties and new virality out of old catalog songs or like B-sides or buried, you know, like tracks because it's part of some tiktok trend you know some some like buried track from paramore just suddenly you know got all of this play because of tiktok yeah i am on tiktok and just recently i got on and it's easy to just go down a rabbit hole of just flip into the next video flip into the next video because it's tailored to your interests it kind of realizes what you like over time and then it's just like addictive video after addictive video and I see how these trends work and it's just the way that people can interact with songs and relate to them in a new more more interactive way than ever yeah Matt you brought up myspace at some point you could put a song on your profile and then you know as time went on you found you found these ways to make that song be something that you're putting out to the world it's a little piece of yourself and yeah tiktok you uses that whether it's some sort of challenge using using a certain little part of a song and yeah it's cool if artists and bands can make a little revenue on that on the back end. Chelsea, I do, you know, maybe it's a little early to jump into this, but I do want to talk. I watched the documentary about the matches last night and it's awesome. I've been a fan. I've been a fan of the matches for a long time. I felt a lot of connection. I I feel like those were guys we maybe crossed paths once or twice. We're from opposite coasts, but I felt a lot of the story there. Just like the matches, my band Punchline was a band that hopped in the van and did relentless touring with some of the same bands. You know, I'm surprised that we never ended up touring together. And I I love the band. I mean, how I was first made aware of the matches is because we were on a compilation album together called A Santa Cause which was a Christmas compilation and the matches song on there. And I think Matt agrees with me is my favorite Christmas song ever. I don't know that it's necessarily even a Christmas song, but December is for cynics is my favorite like Christmas time song ever. I think that song's amazing. When I watch the documentary, I can't help but think to myself, yeah, the matches were hitting at that very strange time of like 
the whole music industry was changing. And, you know, when you look at the people from Epitaph talking about it and being like, why didn't this catch on in that massive way? I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe it was and people just weren't realizing, which I think you touched on in the documentary. And I want people to go watch it. I don't want to spoil anything about it, but I think like they had everything. They had the look. They had the live show. They had the songs for sure. I think that maybe to a certain extent, maybe the songs went a little over people's head, both musically and lyrically. That's my opinion. You know, maybe they weren't straightforward enough for like the lowest common denominator of people, you know, because like, <laughs> look at some of the songs that become popular. We did an episode about Hoobastank the Reason recently. And I'm like, oh, this song is just so straightforward. And so yeah. like, whatever. And, and, you know, the matches were musically so interesting. Like how did, how was Salty Eyes not a massive worldwide hit? It went above people's heads in some way. Maybe they were, they were ahead of the curve in some ways, you know? Yeah. I, I definitely want, wanted to get into this. And I think this does relate back to Yellow Card and in this whole era. But when does the documentary actually come out for everyone to watch and not just special people like me and Matt? <laughs> yeah. First of all, so Bleeding Audio, um, we're, we're working on it. We've just finished up our film festival run. Um, I mean, there might be one or two outliers, but we have a couple kind of bonus screenings. It's been a, it's been a very weird experience as a filmmaker because we kind of had to navigate the film festival circuit virtually, which is very different, yeah. very weird. We are in talks with distributors and we nice. are just kind of trying to find the right fit right now. As soon as the ink is dry, everybody will know. Nice, um, nice. And <laughs> what we're aiming for is typically once you kind of sign that distribution deal, there's about a three or four month deliverable period where you just sort of prep and get everything together. So we're aiming for an early 2022 release, potentially some indie indie theaters, maybe a back-to-back -back kind of situation with the matches and, and a screening. Who knows? We're talking to some people trying to make some plans, but, you know, we also are monitoring the, you know, this situation that we all find ourselves in very closely and trying to find a safe, comfortable way of approaching what a tour would look like. But yeah, so that's that's what we're working on right now. Nice, and nice. then as for uh, like the film and the matches, like, yes, like everything, everything you said, I mean, I, I really do feel like they did kind of go over people's heads. I have one of my best friends, he kind of describes the matches as and I'm not trying to offend anybody or the genre, but pop punk, but smart. Yeah, sure. And like a lot of their lyrics were like very thoughtful and insightful. But yeah, sometimes, you know, you had to like sit and break it down and, and think about it. And sometimes that's just not what people are looking for. But I also argue too, that like they weren't pop punk but they kept getting like put into that box. For sure. Well, I, I just, I'm not trying to say that like, I mean, they, they wrote pop songs that were right. like, kind of like fucked up pop songs, right? Yes. They were like yes. kind of poppy, sort of punky, but sort of like weird and arty. And they just didn't really fit a genre. And so when you can't put something into a singular box, you might put it in a box that doesn't like necessarily define it. And so therefore you either alienate people or you get people who are like, this isn't, what I think it is, you know, and that can confuse an audience, you know, who doesn't know what to expect. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not a fan. You know, my band obviously gets called a pop punk band and I'm not in denial about like, especially our, our early stuff being pop punk. But like, yeah, I think pop's the right word, you know, when it comes to the matches. And to, to bring it back around to Yellow Card a little bit, I think they're obviously a pop punk band. They had 
something that set them apart. And that thing was a violin. Right. Which is cool, which all of our bands at one point or another, obviously the matches Punchline has, lots of bands have used a violin on recording, but it's rare. Yellow Card is the only band that I can think of that had a violin on the stage, minus maybe Dave Matthews or something. Well, that's like what hooked me in as a as a, a teenager when I when I heard Yellow Card because one of the reasons why I picked this song too is because two thousand three two thousand four I was like discovering like punk music and like you know and rock music outside of what my family listened to, which was like country and western. And that right. was like it, you know, like that yeah. was what I grew up around. And so I actually like played in the orchestra. I played in a, in a quartet for a little while and I played viola. And so like, I always thought, oh, well, classical music is kind of the only thing that this instrument is capable of. And so I remember like talking to some friends and being like, well, where do you hear new rock music? And they're like, oh, we listened to like 93.3, which was the rock station in Colorado. And I still remember going to my room and putting on the radio and like listening for some rock music, hearing mostly 90s rock. And then all of a sudden this song comes on and I hear this violin solo over the bridge. And I was like, what my like nerdy instrument that I do love, like can be rock. And I thought that was so cool. And then I just started seeking out like all of these artists that had like orchestra rock is what I called it. So I like, I fell in love with cursive and the ugly organ. Oh, and like, yeah, yeah now you I just, talk about language. <laughs> I like, yeah. I honestly like lost my shit over that record because yeah. I was, because I thought cellos were so cool and I could never play a cello because I'm a tiny human. And like, <laughs> it just, I remember trying to play it and the like orchestra conductor was like, uh, yeah, let's compromise. <laughs> let's give you a right. viola. <laughs> but now like, and murder by death. And like, you know, I started sure. seeking out like bands that had these orchestral instruments, because I thought, oh, cool, like my instrument can be punk. Isn't that cool? You know, yeah. <laughs> and you're you're not the first person I've heard say that someone that played in a high school band or wherever played the instrument, and then that hooked them in and people thought that was cool. And that set them apart. And, you know, to tie this back into I do think that yellow card in comparison to a lot of the other bands at that time, were very musically sound. Everybody held their own. The the they, the songs were interesting. I think that they, you know, Ocean Avenue was pretty straightforward, but it had that cool rhythm that dun, 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 that sucked you in. And I do think that they took a lot of chances in some of their other songs that weren't singles that kept them interesting and more than just like a generic pop punk band. I give them credit for that. I think that, you know, they were, they were good songwriters and good players. And the fact that they had a hit, especially with this song, you know, at this time, I've grown out of this, but I feel like at this time and we had signed to a label and we're really in the thick of things. It felt like a competition in a way. And when you, <laughs> saw, when you saw your peer yeah. like blow up, you sometimes, especially if the band wasn't that good, you felt like, Oh, what the fuck, man? You know, and I, 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 I look, I feel shitty admitting that it's human nature. It is human, human nature, nature. <laughs> especially when you're in the thick of it. And you, you hear about this and I don't feel that way anymore, but I feel like even at the time this song blew up, I knew that yellow card was this band from Jacksonville who'd been around just as long as we had. They had released an EP on fueled by ramen. We were signed to fueled by ramen, all this like 
I just knew that like they paid their dues and everything. And on top of that, the song was great. So I never had any of those like ill will feeling towards yellow card. I always thought like, oh, this song's awesome. These guys, you know, they deserve to have a hit, you know, whereas maybe I didn't feel that way about some of the other bands that had blown up at the time, you know? So yeah. I think that they were, you know, at least in my world, among my friends, they were, everybody respected them, you know, thought, thought it was cool. Whereas we've talked, we've talked on other episodes of this podcast about these bands that came out of nowhere. Here we go, Matt. Are you, are you ready, Matt? We're going to talk about like SR 71 American hi-fi. These bands where it was like, who are these bands? I've never seen your band tour through my town. I've never heard of your band. I never saw you at Warp Tour. Who are you? You know, but like Yellow Card was different. It was cool that they got big. So. Now the like kid who grew up on Christian music is coming out. But did you know where Ryan and Sean actually got their start on a tooth and nail band called Craig's Brother that was also from Florida? Oh. And that's how they met was Sean was hired to do a violin part on a Craig's Brother song. And Ryan had just joined the band because they needed a new guitarist. And then they were just like, kind of like, fuck this shit. Let's go back to Jacksonville and form our own bands. But Craig's brother was great. They had an album that was like a, had some sort of theme to it. Like I, I was it Lost like, some, yeah, that album's really good. I forgot. About, I haven't listened to that album in decades. Wow. Yeah. Right at this time too, Chelsea, I saw what was happening for yellow card like in real time so much so i was looking trying to find it upstairs I, I remembered it like five minutes before i didn't find it it's somewhere upstairs but the tour that yellow card did right before this song blew up we were on that tour but on different dates yellow card was on different dates but it was less than jake fallout boy yellow card rufio and uh we oh we, we did we did like rufio. we did like half of that tour that was our first ever big tour but there was like a limited edition tour ep that everybody that came to the shows got for free uh but yellow card had a song on it called hey mike punchline had it open up fallout boy had grand theft autumn on it lesson jake had two songs and rufio had a song called don't hate me um but so i saw it go from oh yellow cards another band that's opening this tour to a few months later yeah, this song caught on big time. Well, it's so crazy because that era was so interesting because like it just it really felt like I don't know. I felt like Yellow Card did bring pop punk to the mainstream or maybe just because I entered late, maybe like Newfound Glory or Taking Back Sunday or whatever kind of came in a, a year or two before that. Mm -hmm. But I never heard a song so ubiquitous as that one on our radio stations in Colorado, at least like it was everywhere. And I think like you know, listening back to this song, like it's still stuck in my head, <laughs> but just try to like refresh it and everything. But it's so catchy. And it was like, I don't know, it was interesting to seeing on those tours, like seeing the lineups just like so quickly change in those years, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're saying, oh, here's Yellow Card, like supporting like this act. And then suddenly they're just like the this huge headliner. And like to kind of tie it into the matches again, Another reason why I, I picked this band is because one of the match's most successful biggest tours that they ever did is they were direct support for Yellow Card mm -hmm. in like the fall of 2004. And I remember this is a story that we actually didn't really go into detail in the documentary just because it felt a little too nuanced. And we kind of briefly touched on it. But like, I, I guess the matches got signed in 2003. They did Warp Tour in 2004. 
And I guess Yellow Card was like one of the bigger acts on that year at Warp Tour. And I guess every band was trying to get in on that fall, like winter Yellow Card tour. But I guess like just the matches being the nice kind of guys that they are being like this explosive live show, Yellow Card actually picked them. It wasn't the label that assigned them. It wasn't like a booking agent. Yellow Card was like, these dudes are rad. We want them on our tour. And so there's a story in the doc about, you know, the matches going out and selling CDs in the in the crowd, you know, and it was right. those yellow card tours that, you know, they were playing for like 5,000 kids a night and they were able to like go out and they were selling like hundreds and hundreds of CDs every single night, which I think was like, I mean, a testament to them as as like uh, entrepreneurs and just like going out and just like hustling. But also, I mean, a, a little kind of side note is that like SoundScan didn't believe that they were selling that many CDs. Right. Yeah. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, We've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Because they were just actually trying, you know? They were actually right. going out and meeting people, and it's just, like, so crazy to me that, like, something that was so pivotal for them, this amazing promotional, like, yellow card tour, ended up, like, kind of causing a little bit of, of drama for them like in the industry, you know? Because you brought him up, I want to talk about him a little more because I did think that was really interesting when I watched that. First of all, also, so many points when I was watching this, and I was always, the the matches were friends of friends of ours. Like, like I said, we played a few shows here and there, but so many things I related to and the going out and we would go to shows we weren't even playing warp tours, whatever. And we would walk the line and I was the worst of it of my bandmates. I'll admit to that because I was kind of <laughs> shy to go up and talk to people, but my bandmates weren't. And you'd walk around with a disc man, put the headphones on people's heads and sell CDs for five bucks. And it was, you know, there, you saw the certain bands doing it, you know, who did it and, and hustling. And they, some of these people are people that still like my band today, you know, and who'd be like, Oh, you sold me a CD for five bucks at, in line at this thing or at the mall or something like that. And 
and that hustle and work ethic, I love that. When I saw all those parts about the matches doing that, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. The sound scan thing you brought up, yeah, bands were fudging those numbers like crazy, and it sucks for the matches who actually were selling those that many CDs, you know, that SoundScan was suspicious of that or whatever. Yeah, well, and you know? especially because a lot of artists, too, at that time, like, if physical media and CDs are not selling as well, but you kind of go out on tour and you've got, like, your merch person who's, like, you know, cataloging everything like oh, a little, a little fudged number, you know, feels right. harmless. Right? right. But yeah, it was definitely just like a really interesting element to their story. But they said that that yellow card tour was amazing for them. And it was such a great experience. And they had so much fun. And it was just wild, you know, to go from these little shows to like these 5000 cap rooms that yellow card was playing and headlining, you yeah. know, it's another thing that I thought was interesting that you touched on and it is so true if somebody is in a band out there <laughs> you know whether you're starting out it doesn't matter where you're at in your career but it's so interesting I, I actually noted when I was watching I was like wow that's the first time I heard anyone say that and it's so true in my own experience too is that once again I don't really know them personally but they came across as really nice guys in the documentary I, I could feel that I could see that and introducing yourself to other bands, whether opening for them in your town or if you're on something like a festival or, or a tour and uh, making that personal connection with a bigger band and them seeing that you're cool, that has helped my band a bunch of times. And more than a booking agent or, you know, or, oh, look at their numbers right now. Sometimes that's all it takes. There's a bunch of tours that we've got. Uh, Bowling for Soup was a good example. Like we did a festival in Japan with them and we didn't know them, but we decided halfway through their set to push each other onto stage on a little cart while they were playing. And we didn't even know them, which was kind of a risky thing to do, but they thought that was funny. And then we've been friends with them ever since. These little things that you do are, you know, just introducing yourself to people, showing them that you're a, a nice person who they want to spend six, eight weeks with out on the road yes, is important. That is the thing is it, like, yeah. and that's, and that's like the, the thing that I think is so critical is like, you are, you know, you're picking your colleagues basically for like yeah. six months, you know, it's like, right. am I going to, you know, spend six months in like a tiny, confined, sweaty, smelly space with like, who, who is that person going to be? And how am I going to survive this? You know? Right. And I think finding that community and finding like those artists that you're like, yes, I love these guys. I want to support them, but I also like want to hang out with them or, you know, right. or gals too, you know? And that's like the thing that I think is often forgotten in, in music, but also in film, you know, like that's the thing as like an indie filmmaker that, you know, I'm still kind of mourning having done this uh, virtual festival run is like, I haven't been able to go to film festivals and meet as many filmmakers in person, you know, and these are like future collaborators, future people who I can like work with and support who could support me. Yeah. And like, and that's like kind of the whole point of being an artist that makes a collaborative art, you know, music is a collaborative art, you know, in every aspect of it, right? Whether yeah. it's like writing or, or recording or producing or like, you know, performing and touring, like it requires a, a village, you know, and so yeah. does filmmaking, you know, yeah. and I think yeah. like, we forget yeah. that, you know, it's not just about the agents or the industry people. It's about just being a good human and like connecting with other good humans, you know? It's co common sense, right? Yeah. It, it, it should be. 
it should be common sense that going out and talking to other people, and this this kind of relates back to yellow. Okay, first of all, got to give yellow card credit once again. They could have taken anyone out at that point. They're big enough where they're probably going to sell those shows out regardless of who the openers are. So I give them credit for being like, okay, part of it might have been like, okay, these guys are on Epitaph. They've been working hard or whatever. So that is part of it. But yes. But also, there probably were 50 other bands that they could have taken. So they were like, okay, we want to spend time with these people. But, you know, this common sense thing, which may be a little bit lost now in the age of, you know, once it was all online promotion. Because another thing that I've brought up lately is use of pass out flyers to your shows. Go to another show and pass out flyers to your show. Make those personal connections with people. In person. And I don't want to say that this is the norm, but I think now it's just more strategic how these tours are put together. I, I mean, but also I don't know. I mean, so I can't be some authority on this, but I know that like a lot of bands now on like really big tours, they pay for those slots. Like if you're an up and coming band and you want a slot on like the uh, 21 Pilots tour, like, you know, you negotiate what the percentage of ticket sales is, but also you pay for that slot. Like you have like a nightly fee that you yeah. have to pay for that, you yeah. know? Yep. I feel like that instantly puts a barrier between that the community sense that you want to build, you know, because it's like, oh, this isn't this isn't a friendship. This is a transaction, yeah. you know? Yeah. And while like I think it's important, especially now in this digital era, for everyone to like understand and handle their business and like be able to separate the personal from the business, it doesn't change the fact that this is like inherently a community atmosphere. And if the only engagement with that community is transactional, then it's just not then it just it loses that authenticity, you know, and that is the same as to say about like, you know, with fans and band, you know, and that's why I feel like, you know, the matches had this very interesting cult following because they they didn't just treat it like a transaction. They treated it like a community from the start, you know, you know, this is all, you know, part of I mean, it was part of I'm using the term loosely, but punk rock at the time, mm-hmm. you know, especially in that era was that it wasn't. I mean, it got that way. I mean, eventually, especially when bands had huge hits, it got like more corporate or whatever you want to call it. And yeah, now all of a sudden you have bands buying their ways on the tours and things like that. But yeah, there was there was a a real punk rock feeling to it. And, you know, when it comes to this song, bringing it back around to Ocean Avenue, this song, aside from being musically sound, catchy as hell, it also lyrically really grabbed you you know who couldn't relate to this in one way or another i thought it was real interesting when we had ryan key on krista makes a podcast this seems like a love song but in actuality what he said was that it was a song about them leaving jacksonville to move to california to pursue their dreams and uh yeah that makes sense you know when you look at this but i always deciphered it as a love song and who who can't relate to this to the you know if i could find you now things would get better we could leave this town and run forever i mean these aren't lyrics that are necessarily reinventing the wheel but he sung them with conviction i thought it was real interesting something else i found out was that a lot of hit songs come to realize are kind of appear and are written in five or ten minutes and yellow card really labored over this one like they worked on this song for a long time which was Kind of, you know, in 70 episodes of doing a a songwriting podcast, usually it was all these hit songs were like 
oh yeah, I wrote that in 10 minutes and it blew up and became this hit. Well, this one was a rare exception where they were like, no, we like tried a lot of different things. We really like had to make this one happen. And um, you can hear it. It's like a well-crafted song. It, it really is, you know? Arguably, the the verse is almost catchier than the chorus. There's a place off Ocean Avenue is what you remember of this. That first line of the song is like, if someone said, sing Ocean Avenue right now, you'd go, there's a place off Ocean Avenue. It's probably why they named the song that. They just knew like, oh, that first line is so catchy. It's almost like the outfield, your love. It's like, Jesse's on a vacation far away. Yeah, that's what you're going to remember about that song you know so yeah i mean they did it right right from the right from the very beginning you know it was a great song i got (laughs) this is off topic a little bit but i gotta tell you one of my favorite tweets of all time relates to yellow card and i don't know if you guys have seen this before i've i've seen it retweeted so many times over the years but it's from 2016 and it was keith buckley from every time i die who tweeted (laughs) warp tour day one I can't wait to do yoga every night with old friends. Warp Tour Day 9. Maybe the fiddle player from Yellow Card has Coke. <laughs> which, I, which, I, which I thought is one of the funniest tweets of all time. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, we, we always look, Chelsea, we look at like what else was going on at this time in music. And yeah, this song blew up. This was a huge TRL hit, which I think this... Cro- this oh. crossed it. Yeah, TRL. <laughs> RIP, total yeah. requ- request live. <laughs> Usher was at the top of this list with Yeah, with Lil John and Ludacris. And I, what I noticed is around this time that it was a lot of like really good hip hop and hip hop adjacent music. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, it was a little bit of a novelty hit or whatever. But Slow Jams, Twista featuring Kanye and Jamie Foxx was on the charts at this time. The Way You Move and Hey Ya from Outkast. Dirt Off Your Shoulder from Jay-Z and Through the Wire from Kanye. Back when Kanye was great. (laughs) You know, it was a lot of like really great hip hop at that time. The closest thing I could find on the charts when I looked to something like Ocean Avenue and not that this is even that close, but was like, it's my life from no doubt, which was a cover song. That was the closest thing I could find at this time. I also looked at like what punk albums came out around this time. The Blink-182 self-titled came out around this time, which was kind of like post Blink-182 for me. (laughs) Like at that point, I like kind of wasn't interested, but apparently, apparently everyone loved that. I miss you song. I, I kind of like missed out on that, but also I was right in the thick of a lot of this because I was like recording with the same people on the same label, having the same producers as a lot of these bands that I was watching around me like blow up astronomically. But like Fall Out Boy, Take This to Your Grave came out around this time. Right. Motion City soundtrack, I Am the Movie was around this time. Less Than Jake, Anthem, of course. Saves a Day in Reverie, which kind of like- that's right. Kind of like in the vein of the matches, Chelsea. I felt like this In Reverie album was a little bit over people's heads and a little bit ahead of its time. And I know that a lot of Saves a Day fans, and I'm not going to say me, maybe me, <laughs> at the time were kind of like, what is this? But it, but now I listen to it, I'm like, oh, this is great. Also, 
uh, personal favorite, The Weaker Than's Reconstruction Site was around uh, this yes. time. Yeah, I mean, I Am the Movie was huge for me personally. Like that was that yeah. was kind of my first introduction to like, oh, there are awesome bands that aren't on the radio, you know? Yeah. And I like learned about Motion City Soundtrack and arguably Motion City Soundtrack is what ended up leading me to the matches, you know? Ah. I saw, I went to like the Epitaph tour in like 2005 nice. and I went to go see Motion City and, you know, the matches opened and, you know, I was like, I, I always joke that it was like, you know, like a cartoon, like my hair was like blown back and I was like, <laughs> what was this? It was amazing. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I became awesome. a fan ever since. Yeah, it so. was cool. It was cool seeing a couple of the Motion City guys in the film as well, especially I know Matt and I were especially excited to see Tony Thaxton in there, who Tony Thaxton is my number one guy that I want to be friends with. <laughs> Tony's really great. And honestly, like him in the film, um, he was one of the first interviews that I did. I, nice. I mean, a big thing with with like kind of having Tony and Justin in the film is Justin was a huge matches fan. And, you know, Tony was like a tour mate. But Tony, I know he had a similar experience to Justin from the matches, which was just like that tour burnout, right, which right. is a thing that I feel like was, you know, it was a, a symptom of the changing industry, you know, is like, mm -hmm. I feel like pre 2004, you know, the sort of yellow card Ocean Avenue era, pre like the, you know, fall of the music sales, like bands could tour at a, a healthy amount. It was like, oh, you know, we sell the record and we tour for like a few months and we make our income for the year. But then it turned into, oh, we have to tour the entire year in yeah. order to make a living. And that's like, you know, for some people, it's it's great. And I think it's awesome. Like if you can live on the road, and that's a lifestyle you want to do, but not everyone is really suited for that lifestyle. And it can be really exhausting. And especially if you can't tour at a level where you're allowed like creature comforts, like a hotel room, or right. like, right. you know, or a bus, yeah. it and kind you, of destroys yeah. you, you know, it's not sustainable. And I know Tony was a uh, very kind and forthright with sharing his experience and a lot of it isn't in the final film but he does you know touch on it a little bit about that about how difficult touring really is you touched on something too in the film that was when you hit that point 27 28 29 years old where you're seeing the people you went to high school with the people you went to college with they have families they have careers they have and yeah and you're in a van and you're still doing this thing and then that's that's a real turning point where you have to be like okay which way am I going to go and I've seen a lot of people go one way and one and a lot of people go the other and there's no right decision there's no guidebook in life there's no rule book but you got to decide like do do I like this do I do I like this because this could be my life for forever I don't fault people for being like you know what this this ain't you know and that was one of the the heartbreaking parts of the the film chelsea and i i won't spoil anything i'm not going to spoil anything <laughs> watch you got to you got to see the film but we can know. we can when we when we uh, stop the record button we can talk about the thing i think i know that you're talking about yeah right right <laughs> i love every decision that i that i personally have made wouldn't change a thing no regrets i think there's no rule books we're all just feathers floating on a breeze is how i feel about it and I don't care what generations before have done. I don't care about stuff like that. Maybe I'm an anomaly. I know that most of the people I've surrounded myself with are also of that state of mind. And I think that's a cool way to be. But, you know, regardless of any of that, I think we got to decide whether Yellow Card, you know, we all dug deeper into their catalog, I think. We all know some of their other songs. Did they bring the one hit Thunder 
or were they a one-hit blunder? Chelsea, I'll let you start. I mean, I don't want this to be interpreted poorly, but I never dug into their catalog any further, Mm. even though I I mean, I I listened to that record, which, Mm. you know, was also titled Ocean Avenue, but that's about as far as I got. And so I would say, you know, like maybe because I just listened to that song and that record, it would be a one hit blunder because I didn't get hooked, but I don't, I don't really know. But yeah, I'm going to, I'm just going to stand by one hit blunder for me personally in my, in my orbit. Because gotcha. it didn't it didn't hook me any further, even though I was a hardcore orchestra rock fan. <laughs> it was like I think I just I just uh, didn't stick around. So one hit blunder. I'm just gonna okay, gotcha. Commit, commit. <laughs> Matt, what do you think? Uh, I'm gonna go a light thunder. I liked a lot of their stuff pre Ocean Avenue. I love Craig's Brothers. So the fact that they came from Craig's Brother, I had full support on that. I don't think that the records after Ocean Avenue had what made this album and the early stuff so special just for what they were doing prior. I'm going to give them a light thunder because their, their back catalog uh, pre ocean Avenue is really worth diving into. I'm going to give this band a thunder. I can't pretend I'm like, you know, that I'm listening to yellow card every day or something, but they, they were a real deal band. They did it the right way, you know, and they had a lot of great songs. I think they kept trying to musically top themselves, maybe got a little ahead of themselves as far as like trying to have another hit. They tried to do some cool things. I would give them, I would give them a thunder for sure. This is the complete opposite of what I get mad about on podcasts (laughs) about one hit wonders, Matt, this band stuck it out. They continue to make music today. And I just, I think they're a really good band. And I, I got to give him a thunder. Mad respect for, for Yellow Card. I love it. One last question for Chelsea. Obviously, there's still a lot of discussion with how people can see Bleeding Audio, but where is the best spot for people to go so that they're first to know when they can see Bleeding Audio? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you can go to our website, which is www.bleeding-audio.com. And if you're under the age of 30 and only use social media, then you can go to our Instagram uh, which is at bleeding audio film and our Twitter, which is at bleeding underscore audio. And then we also have a Facebook, which is slash bleeding audio film. And, you know, you could also just sort of like put your ear to the ground because as soon as we sign a distribu- uh, distribution deal, I'll just be screaming and dancing and jumping <laughs> around. So you'll, you'll hear it. You'll know. You'll be like, what was that? Yeah, <laughs> It's awesome. It, There's it's- a shiver up my spine. <laughs> It's a very awesome documentary. I think whether you whether you know the matches or you don't, that's the key to a good documentary is that regardless of whether you were familiar with the topic of it or not, it's still awesome to watch. And I think you succeeded in that, Chelsea. So amazing job. And uh, thanks for thank thanks you. for giving us the uh, the sneak peek at it too. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely chatting with you guys. Oh, yeah. uh, that 2004 era of music is near and dear to my heart. So this was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Ophelios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah, and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. Underneath me, you're hearing Very Nervous System off the Punchline album, So Nice to Meet You. Visit punchline.com for merch, new music, and upcoming shows. If you have any interest in podcasting, visit weknowpodcasting.com for how Matt and Chris can make your show sound as professional as possible. 
Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. Tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob Podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.